Bueno. Hey everybody, this is Shobert, Shoberry back at the Shoberry Show. Thanks for listening in. I'm really excited to have our next guest who I've been fortunate enough to be known since my college days, a college buddy of mine, Chris Surdy, known as Surdy. Uh, what up, Shobes? Hey, welcome to the Shoberry Show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So who is Chris Surdy? Oh man, that's a big package. <laughs> <laughs> nah, man, um, you know, I'm just a guy like everybody else, man. Like my football coach used to tell me, everybody puts on their pants one leg at a time, man. So I ain't no different than anybody else out there. <laughs> nice, um, nice. But uh, no, nah, you know, I grew up on the East Coast and I came out to SoCon Valley back in, what is it, 2003 when my mom was like, hey, if you're into tech and entrepreneurship, you should probably come out to SoCon Valley. And I was like, yeah, what's that? And she was like, I'll buy you a plane ticket. Uh, wow. So I came out to visit and drove up the 101. And, you know, at that time it was like Yahoo and Excite and Google and stuff like that. And I go, yeah, I should probably move from Rhode Island to California. That probably makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, I think that was a definitely a good move on your part. For yeah. sure. Well, it's funny. Like when I went to college, so like I said, I grew up back east and went to Bryant College or now Bryant University in Rhode Island for the first two years. And when I showed up, they were like, hey, what's your email address? And I was like, what's an email address? Seriously? I, yeah, like seriously. Oh my gosh. I was like super into sports and just like yeah. a traditional upbringing. Like I wasn't into tech. Like I had my head in the ground, man. I was like living in a bubble. And so so it was a huge wake up call for me. I was like, wait, what's an email address? What's a web browser? What's this thing called Google? Like, <laughs> Oh, you had a crash course. I had, I had a crash course when I went to college. You, yeah. You've actually did it pretty quickly since I met you because I literally met you probably about a year or two after that. Yeah, about two years. Um, yeah. yeah. So where did you grow up in the East Coast? We lived all over. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. So just mostly like my family's from Jersey, lived in Massachusetts, lived in Rhode Island. Okay. So, so yeah, the East Coast. And then you, yeah. you've been in the past almost 20 years here. Yeah, almost wow. 23 years. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Almost. Nice, yeah. nice. And so since you've been here, what is like so exciting about being here, basically? Like what is it that makes you who you are and you've stayed in Silicon Valley? Like what's the key thing about that that you like? I mean, I think it just comes down to alignment. Going back to like when I was a freshman in college, it's like I was like, oh man, I don't know anything, right? I, yeah, like, yeah, I, yeah. I basically like leapfrogged a year later, I ended up starting a tech company, right? And so like I was okay. like, I had to catch up. So but, what you started a tech company in East Coast when yeah. you came here? Uh, East Coast. Okay. Yeah. When All I was right. at Bryant. And what was the company? That was fastcash.com. Okay. Uh, so fastcash with a PH. So uh -huh. yeah, yeah. So I had the PH, you know, instead of the F. Yeah. But it was like, okay, what do I, I was like, I had this moment basically when I was a freshman in, in college, I was just like, wait a minute, I'm not going to be a track star. I'm not going to be a football player. I'm only five, eight and a half with my hair. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I'm not built for professional sure. football or anything like that. What am I going to do in my life? And then my second semester, I took an entrepreneurship course and I just like oh, immediately nice. clicked. And Smart. I was like, that's what I want to do with the rest of my life. I want to be in startups. I want to be in tech. I want to be an entrepreneur. And so when I was basically 19 years old, I figured out kind of what I wanted to do with the rest Ooh. of my life, which is very fortunate. I mean, a lot of people... I mean, look, I know 49, 59 year olds, right? They're still trying to figure out their life, yeah. right? So I'm yeah. very fortunate in that regard. And so when I learned about, like, eventually learned about what Silicon Valley was and, you know, the alignment that it had with my life and the environment that I was in, sure. you know, it's kind of like, I've mentioned this to you before, right? Like if you're an actor, you go to Hollywood, right? If yeah. you're an entrepreneur, you go to Silicon Valley. Well, this is like, it's a, traditionally in the US, these are the hub and I call it the hubs really, like the hub of tech was in Silicon Valley because of. Stanford because of HB because of like the success stories that came about and they started this ecosystem in Hollywood obviously being that the entertainment hub right and so on and so forth we could go on like the automobile hub was Detroit the energy hub was Houston so yeah and your mother was already here and she kind of encouraged us while you were still actually in college in the East Coast yeah what happened was is my dad took a job out here my senior year in high school and so he actually moved out before my mom moved out you know so they basically moved out but he just came a couple months ahead of time 
And so that was a pretty fun senior year. Yeah. Uh, I was the man of the house, right? So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was like, all right, mom, whatever. Nice. Right? Yeah. But yeah, no. So he moved out he, for a job and then she moved out. When I went to college, she moved out here. So they were both living out here, but she was the one that kind of dragged me out. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So you got into entrepreneurship. Did you have any point in your childhood? You're like, hmm, any inclination of you knew you're going to be an entrepreneur? Yeah, you know, I was thinking about that. And it's kind of interesting. I think there's been a bunch of pockets in my life. One story I've told before, like in lectures is like, I always knew I was going to be an entrepreneur because I always figured out how to tie my shoes on my own. Right. Like, my, you know, my parents were trying to teach me the bunny loop thing or, oh, or the, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the two loops and around. I was like, forget it, bunny ears. And I just figured it out myself. Right. Like nice. I always knew, like I had that creative energy into me and like, kind of like, I'm going to do what I like, how I feel about it. You know what yeah. I mean? Like what I want to go do with it. But it was interesting. I was thinking about this. Magic Johnson, of all people, actually had a huge influence in my life. Oh, wow. um, yeah, it's kind of interesting. I'm not a basketball fan at all, really. I barely watch basketball. But I remember when I was a boy, I don't know, maybe it was like eight or nine, maybe 10 years old, when it came out that he had HIV, right? And so then he yeah. went on a big campaign, you know, HIV and AIDS. And then I remember, sure. you know, shortly after that, it was like, oh, Magic Johnson's basically cured. Like, he's going to live with it for the rest of his life. But like, he gets all this medicine. And I thought to myself, like, Oh, okay. So that's how it works in America. If you're rich, you survive. Right. And so like not to be a cynic or anything, but it's just like, okay, I always knew that I like making money was not something that I was going to do because I wanted to be driving a Lamborghini or, you know, have the big house or the pool or whatever it it is. It unlocks kind of the freedom you want to do stuff. It's the resources, right? It's the resources. And it's like, Hey, look, this is a capitalistic environment. And so like, this is what it takes to sort of, you know, survive in America. And so like, you know, I don't need to be like Elon Musk rich, right? But I just, you want to be able to have the resources to do what you need to do. And especially when it comes to your health, for example, right? You want to be able to say like, I can fund that or I have the resources and the means to take care of myself, my family, that type of thing. So that was a huge influence in terms of just like, okay, I know that I want to do something in business and I know I want to do something, you know, sort of on my own to try to chart my own path. And then my family has always been like entrepreneurial, like my uncles and my cousins and all that. So it's always been kind of, I mean, I'm an Italian from New Jersey. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like something's falling off a truck and somebody's selling something to somebody, right? It's it's always, always, it was always in the, in the DNA. So that entrepreneurial spirit or that hustle has always been. But it basically, you had that story you saw and how old were you at this point you said? With the Magic Johnson sort of moment that I had, I was about 10 years old or so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so when you were basically starting the company, in college, it was like no hesitation. That was your first time you were doing an entrepreneur, like your startup or no? Did you do something actually before that? No, no. The first time I legitimately did it, like, you know, a real business where we filed for an LLC, we had income statements, we had tax records, et cetera, et cetera, was when I was a sophomore at Bryant University. Oh. And so we literally ran the company out of our dorm room. So it was me and three other sort of college buddies. But nice. I mean, it was a legitimate company and we registered an LLC in Rhode Island, like I said, and we had customers, we had revenue, we had expenses, we had board meetings, you know, wow. the whole thing. I mean, back then it was a big deal, but really what it was, it was a beta test, right? It was the major thing that we were trying to do is just get that business experience. What right? was it again? If you don't refresh my memory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what we did is we did paid clinical studies. And so essentially we actually would have crushed it during COVID. <laughs> so like yeah, basically, sounds about right. Yeah, so basically you have like the Allergy and Asthma Center of Rhode Island, Brown University, like all these different institutions, right? And they do these clinical studies. And what the biggest problem they have is recruiting people for it, right? And so we were essentially a middleman, a recruiter, and they would advertise with our website. Essentially, we would charge them to post an ad on our site. But then on the other side, we would go recruit a bunch of college students to our site, right? And connect them. And so what happened was, is back, you know, back in when I was a freshman in college, 
I smoked cigarettes at the time. And so I saw one of those flyers, you know, posted up in the cafeteria or whatever. It said, get paid $50 at Brown University for two hours of your time. So I literally got in a taxi, drove, you know, all the way down to Brown University. It was like 20 minutes away. Sure. I spent two hours there. They asked me some questions. I smoked a couple of cigarettes and I got 50 bucks. And I was like, eh, 50 bucks back then was a, like a huge money, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was like, the taxi ride didn't cost 50 bucks? Yeah. <laughs> well, nowadays it would be with inflation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then I just would like literally, and this was just when I started that entrepreneurship course, my second semester. Sure. And so then I just said, hey, like, uh, how do you guys typically find people? Like college students just, you know, pull the little flag, the little tag on the flyer and call you. And then the two ladies just like who were running the study, they just rolled their eyes and they were like, uh, this is like the hardest thing for us because a they're like clinical technicians. They're not advertising or marketing people, yeah. right? And they're asked to like basically go find people to come in and participate in the okay. studies. So but then you a problem that they were looking for yeah. you to resolve to your startup idea. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so I was like, well, wait a minute. I'm a college student. What if I had a database of six thousand or sixteen thousand or thirty two thousand people where you could just post the advertisement. We blast out an email to them and say, hey, we have this new study. Wow. Cool. And so, yeah, anyways, long story short, that's basically what we were doing. Okay. Uh, we were supporting the clinical trial industry, right, for drug development or any kind of clinical studies. Yeah. And then, you know, I was curious after that, like, you've done probably other stuff, a startup, entrepreneurship space. What were some key timeframes that you're like, this was wins, this is failures, there was a learning in the process? What happened to that startup? Did it do well or not? I mean, that one was all learning, right? Like okay, we had revenue. We had revenue. We had money coming in. We had, again, contracts with like Brown University and Allergy and Asthma Center of Rhode Island. We had one out of Boston. I can't remember the name of the top of my head because we did that kind of whole New England area. It's not even incorporated like a typical startup here in the Valley does. Your LLC. So. Yeah. Yeah, got it, got it. Yeah, yeah. So, but that was, oh, the whole thing was learning. And then that's when I said, you know, when I decided to move out to California and basically transfer to San Jose State where you and I met. We just shut it down, basically. Okay. Right? And so right. it was, you know, how much can I learn? And then I took all those learnings. And you and I met through the Entrepreneurial Society. Of San Jose That's State, right. right? Yeah. And if you remember, we treated that like, it was a club, but we treated it like a business. Yeah, we but, went out there door to door. A lot of businesses on uh, Stevens Creek in San Jose. Yeah. And we were able to close uh, Honda. Yeah, remember uh, that? That was you, me, and uh, there's two other people with us. I can't remember. But, yeah, I forgot um, their names. Too. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, we were out there hustling. Remember, we got two got grand. A, yeah. yeah, and you got a feature in the San Jose Mercury for that story. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That was. <laughs> yeah, we were on the front page of the San Jose Mercury uh, business section because of that. Remember that? Yeah, that, yeah, was, yeah, yeah. that was incredible. Yeah. But all of that stuff, like I wouldn't have known to do any of that had I not done Fast Cash got before, it. right? Yeah, and so yeah, I yeah. learned a lot. And then I took those learners, I applied them to in this case, the Entrepreneurial Society. Sure. And then from there, went and started another company. And so you just kind of learn and grow along the way. Everything's a lesson. Life totally. is a lesson, right? Yeah. yeah. And then when you were at San Jose State, did you do anything like the, what do you call it, the pitch competitions? From there, did you also start a company that was based on the pitch competition or no? Yeah, yeah. So senior year, I mean, San Jose State has a great entrepreneurship program, right? It um, is, yeah. And, and it's they, in the hub in Silicon Valley, so it's like right plugged in. Yeah. The Silicon Valley Center for Entrepreneurship, which is run by Professor Bazu, she's done an amazing job. So in the fall semester, they had like the Neat Ideas Fair, I think is what it was called. And there's a pitch competition. That's right. So my senior year, I had this idea. I was really fortunate enough to take a trip to China through the College of Engineering. They took three business students. And then the rest was uh, engineering students. There's 25 total. And we went to Taiwan, Beijing, Shanghai. We toured all these different companies. And when I was there, I was like, wait, I just flew like halfway around the world to visit like IBM and Cisco. <laughs> yeah, I was like, and you're literally in your backyard. I, they're literally in our backyard. I'm like, yeah. why are people coming here? So I had the idea to start a company where we would bring people from all over the world to Silicon Valley for business development tours. Yeah, smart. Uh, 
So I spent senior year using that idea in all these pitch competitions. So there was a pitch competition at San Jose State. There was one in Florida. It was actually a national competition. I was very fortunate enough to take first place in that one. Whoa. Yeah, so that was pretty that. cool. Yeah, I mean, 2,500 bucks at, you know, 22 years old. Yeah. I was rolling. I was like, let's go to Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> double or yeah, nothing. Yeah, double or nothing. So, I mean, that was a lot of money, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, great experience, though. I mean, it was 1,100 people. Steve Wozniak was like front and center. It was wow. really nerve-wracking. But as a 22-year-old kid, I mean, it was a great sure. experience to get up there yeah. like that. That's um, and then in the springtime, they have the business plan competition. So then we run yeah. the business plan for GEP, Global Educational Program. We end up taking second place, won 5000 bucks, And then we actually used that as our seed money and launched the company about two months later. Awesome. And so I used that whole senior year and all the resources and all the assets and all the networks that's associated with the Silicon Valley Center for Entrepreneurship, as well as the other resources at San Jose State to sort of like launch pad it, right? So to kick it off. Yeah, and yeah. then at that point, you know, I was a plug and play, was able to like help you get plugged in, get going, but- um, That was what, huge, man. I'll yeah. tell you, man, like starting a company and not being, like you can't start a company in your living room. It's, or I mean, you can, but well, it's just very, very, yeah, yeah, it's very, very difficult. And back then, I don't think, like if I had stayed in that little apartment that I had, it probably would have just failed. Plus, plus so. back then the social networks were nothing now. Like yeah. at that time, we, you know, Facebook wasn't even Facebook. Yeah, it was still in colleges. Yeah. You're talking about MySpace and High Five and all this. So yeah, it's a whole different time frame now with yeah. and everything. Okay. And then what are some learnings you had from there? And then um, what are some overcoming challenges and secrets that you have to do these startups? Because these are different startups, each one of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I did another one right after that. So we ended up just to, to tie off GEP, ran that for about four years. We ended up selling it for a 3X multiple, which- Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, well, that was great back then. Now everything sells for 20X multiple. So maybe I should have held out a little bit, but <laughs> it was I mean, definitely- it's all hearsay though. Yeah. It's always good to say you started and yeah. you sold. A lot of people fail. Like, yeah. I've been through multiple failures in startups. So yeah, I think it's not a bad thing. And then- which I'm going to go to later on. I'm going to ask about a question about being like part of like teams versus starting it only yourself and running it. But and after GDP, where did you start? Actually, I'm curious. I co-founded a company with this guy David called Powerbeam. Oh yeah, yeah, so yeah. Powerbeam so was that really was fascinating. Can you tell everybody what that was? Yeah, so it was really cool. I actually met at Plug and Play Tech Center, yeah. uh, the place that you got me into. And uh, he basically developed a wireless power technology where you would have a transmitter that would turn electricity into an invisible optical energy. And then you would beam that across like meters, like literally long distance, you know, sort of environments into a receiver, which is basically a solar cell yep. and then convert it back into electricity. And so we ran pretty hard at that for about three years, raised about one point one million dollars and then just completely failed. Right. Yeah. Um, three years. Yeah. It was, wow, it was three. It was, that, it was three long. full years. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, it was a great experience. We fought like the Dickens, basically. I call it my Silicon Valley MBA, though. I mean, I was up and yeah, down Sand Hill point. Road. I yep. made huge connections with a bunch of VCs, like a network like crazy. But that actually, the funny thing about Power yeah. Beam was that to this day, there's nothing like that. I, I've seen that you could actually power electricity as a wireless device with through the house safely without obviously being <laughs> radiated and all that. Yep. Can you imagine Elon Musk announcing something like this? I mean, it's possible, but I can't see it. Yeah. It's weird. It's so surprising. I, th I think the fundamental was the economics were really difficult with that one. Cost between the scale, yeah. yeah, between the cost of materials and the efficiency that loss that you have. I mean, we basically we did a bunch of contracts. And we did contracts like Logitech, LG, AT and T. Wow. We did a bunch of proof of concepts, but all we were doing at that time was just trickle charging batteries. <sighs> Right. And so it was basically like, it was basically a, a super powered battery charger. Yeah. Right? And so the economics didn't really work out very well. So I think Fair there's efficiency issues with that one. So. Okay. And then did you get into another startup? Did you do your own? So what's your next path? Because I know you kind of have this really cool term called angel employee. 
When did you start doing that? And can you explain to everybody what an angel employee is? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So for like my definition of an angel employee, basically someone who joins a startup early and brings their experience and their superpower to the startup to be basically a force multiplier. And so at the time that I decided to become an angel employee, I had done three startups, right? One that I had sold successfully. I had always been the salesperson, right? I mean, you're either a hustler or you know, a hacker and definitely not a hacker, right? Uh, so yeah. like my superpower is sales. And so yeah. between those, you know, startup experiences and my sales experience, I said, let me go to early stage companies, series A, series B, bring all of my experience in the startup space, as well as this sales experience that I have. And having actually sales as a hustler is like, I think it's a big, big issue, like actually uh, advantageous and huge asset for these companies, which a lot of times like overlook because everybody dreams about the, the engineer, the product guy, yeah. the designer. So, yeah. I mean, every sales book you read will say nothing happens until sales happens, yeah. right? Nothing happens until sales is exactly. You can make all the widgets you want, but until yeah. somebody actually buys them, nothing actually happens, right? So it's fundamental. And yeah, I mean, a lot of like Silicon Valley CEOs are really hackers, right? They're not yes. really salespeople, right? So they need a really strong sales team. And I think any tech CEO will tell you that it's not good. If it's not for a really strong first or second sales hire, you know, the company could potentially go under. But you also right? have to be passionate in getting in the vertical you yeah. work for, right? Yeah. Uh, so for me, I, I knew from the very beginning when the App Store launched, I was like, this is the future, just the eyeball. I want to get into this space. And I'm here now, like 11 plus years, pretty crazy. So what was the vertical industries you were looking at back then? So I basically went into payments right away for a couple of different reasons. One is, I mean, you want to sell the painkiller, not the vitamin, right? And so payments is a painkiller because everybody has to accept payments online, right? Or yeah. just in general. Yeah. Again, commerce cannot happen without a sale and credit card payments are a big part of that. So That's a good perspective. Yeah. So I went to I went to WePay. So it was pretty early there. I joined them right before their Series B with them for about a year and a half or so. And then they ended up getting bought by Chase for $400 million. Wow. And so that was a really good experience. So that got me into the payments tech space. Then I learned a little bit more and I discovered Braintree payments. Mm-hmm. They were based out of Chicago, so they weren't that prevalent out here in Silicon Valley. Braintree was in Chicago? Yeah, their headquarters was in Chicago. I didn't know that. Uh, and they had bought Venmo, right? right. Yeah, and Venmo so, was in the East Coast. Too. Yeah, and they're out of New York. And so, yeah, they weren't. No, people weren't really talking about them out here. No. But then when I found out about them, I'm like, wait a minute, these guys just haven't you know, hit the mainstream Silicon Valley. Venmo, yet, they're prime for I thought Venmo did a little bit because they launched in like South by Southwest and people doing the peer-to-peer stuff, especially like people who are into tech and products. But that's interesting. I didn't know they were both, like especially Braintree was actually in the Midwest. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It was like a little bit under the radar, So right? were you here or were you actually... Uh, no, no, I was here. I mean, I would fly back to Chicago all the time, but I was based in, like they hired me to be the guy in Silicon Valley. Nice, so I was yeah. like, okay, I'm going to get into this like kind of under the radar company right now. I think it's going to be huge. I'm going to be the guy in Silicon Valley selling nice. the tech companies, competing with Stripe, yeah. you know, that type of thing. And then six months later, they got bought by PayPal for $800 million. Jeez. And I was just like, okay. Yeah, then, you got the touch with like uh, the right industry and the acquisition companies. I guess, I guess. I mean, well, that's the reason that you do. That's the reason why I'm saying like the angel employee goes early because it's less risk than being a straight entrepreneur, right? I mean, again, sure. that power beam. I mean, I just, we lost everything, right? I mean, I even lost some of my own money, right? Because I was going straight for the entrepreneurial route. But here, you're going a little bit later, but you're still taking enough risk to where you get some pretty good equity. And you so do. if there's upside, you're basically, it's a win-win situation. You're getting paid cash and your commission checks and your salary because the company has raised some money. And then if there's a successful exit, right, then you get, on the backside, you get rewarded very, very well through the equity. Upside, yeah. And so that was what happened. So after Braintree... After, you know, the acquisition, you know, I stuck around for a little bit and, you know, I was doing really well in sales and making money. A VC buddy of mine said, 
you know, hey, all right, you know, all the equity's gone now. You know, what are you doing next? And I was like, I don't know. He's like, well, I just put some money in this company called Segment. And I was like, yeah, I never heard of them. And he's like, <laughs> he's like, yeah, he's like, they're pretty smart guys and they're really good people and they have something that's really interesting. And yeah. it's just the beginning of a new space. You want to um, explain Segment, what it is? At what stage were you to? That's like Series A. I just joined right wow. after Series A. So I was the first sales hire. So there's a guy that they had hired named Ralph Parker. Love the guy to death. And he was like the first sales slash like business guy. So he was handling a lot of the business operations, some of okay. the marketing, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And he was doing sales, but they were like, we need to hire someone just focused on sales. And so my buddy who's a VC just made a suggestion to his other buddy who's a VC, went out to coffee and he's just like, they're doing something really interesting. They got something, but they don't really know how to message it yet. Yeah. They have product market fit because they got some customers, but they don't know how to scale it, et cetera, et cetera. Really early stage. Sure. So anyways, I met with the team and I was like, look, I don't fully understand where you guys are, but like, I really like you guys. And I think you guys are really upstanding people and in terms of the founders and, and you know, there's people I was they talking were. to. Yeah, I and they, oh, they're, they're wonderful. Yeah, yeah. And then you, you might be on the cusp of something really big. It turned they out- They went through Y Combinator too. They were through yeah. Y Combinator. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then, so you joined, what number? employee were you? 17. Okay. Wow. Yeah. You were really early. Really early. Yeah. And this is pre A or B? Right after the A. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Right after the A. So. And then, so let me ask you a question. You've been to these three companies now, two in the payment and then segments more in like, I guess, data. Yeah. So it was the first customer data platform. Yeah. The first CDP. Now everyone knows what a CDP is, but back then sure. nobody knew what it was. Yeah. Yeah. So basically how do you, okay. So one of the biggest issues when you join a big startup is convincing traditional businesses and companies mm-hmm. to understand that. Like, how do you, as the surdy hat, the angel employee, how do you bring that to the table for these kind of companies? Do you have a good case study or example of like a sales? Like you mentioned, you brought in like, I think it was a crate and barrel, someone big oh, yeah. initially yep. for like segment. Mm-hmm. So tell that, I don't know if you have any stories, you could say publicly now, it's obviously not their soul, but like. Yep. I mean, whether you're an entrepreneur or you're an early employee at a company, right? You're a sale, you know, one of these angel employees on the sales side. You got to be scrappy for sure. You got to be scrappy. But more importantly, man, you have to sell the vision. Like as an entrepreneur, you're in a VC boardroom or you're at a customer, a prospect or a customer, and you're selling the future of what it could be like. You have to be able to charismatically communicate that and paint the picture to where it's credible and believable. Because like you're not fully there, but you know that you're going to get there and here's why. So it's kind of like, here's where we are. Here's where we're trying to go. Here's how we're going to get there and why. This is why you should join us Got on it. our trip, on our sort of mission. So basically, you're, you're pitching a story, which obviously have a product people enjoy. Yeah. And then what's the next level? Like, how do you get them to say, okay, I'm committing? You got to pitch the, the future value. So with Crate and Barrel, for example, that's a great example. I was like, dude, it's we are like the electrical grid for data. And like, what do you mean? I like that angle. Yeah. And yeah. they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, dude, in 1930, you had like a fan a telephone and a light, light bulb, yeah. right? But yep. like, it didn't matter because all you did was you plugged it into the wall and behind that outlet was this massive network of inverters and diverters and substations and a power generation, you know, nuclear power plant in Oregon that right, was the <laughs> source of all the energy, sure. right? Yeah. But you, in 1930, you just plugged in your three devices you and you were it. done, exactly. right? You didn't yeah. know what happened once you plugged it into the outlet. Fast forward to today, and you got your laptop, you got your cell phone, you got your HDTV, you got 13 different IoT devices plugged into all your electricity. That's the world that you live in, but in the data space, right? You got Google Analytics, you got Mixpanel, you got Braze, you got like 30 different sort of vendors that you need to quote unquote plug into your systems. That's right. You can either plug those in yourself or you can just plug them into the wall. And so like once people understood that analogy and understood what that future impact is like, because if you only have three appliances, you don't care. But if you have 30 that you need to plug into, 
right? You're not going to go build your own electrical system. Yeah. So as a business, that makes a lot of sense because yeah. you're trying to track everything and make sure it's all, you know, in one, like it's impossible. There's actually so much track, like websites. So I remember watching the data when you showed me on segment, I was like, wow, this is really cool. It's all compiled into one. So how, how long were you at segment for? And then did you build a team around it or not? What kind of evolved out of that? Yeah, I was there for about five and a half years. Yeah. I was fortunate enough to do a stint in Manhattan. We needed to open an office oh, out yeah, there. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so they sent, it, sent me and my – it was me, my pregnant wife, and two kids. So, huh. like, you know, we literally had our daughter in Manhattan, which was pretty cool. Great. My daughter's a little New Yorker. But, yeah, so there's a lot of opportunities. I mean, I traveled a lot, which was awesome. Went to New York for a year on the company dime, which was amazing. Led a team out there, then came back and led a team out here. Yeah, and it was great. And then Twilio uh, bought Segment for $3.2 billion in October of 2020. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. 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 Okay. And then I definitely want to ask, like, what does it entail to be like a pure hustler entrepreneur, like successful? Like, what is it that you entail that you feel like has been a successful entrepreneur for yourself? So, like, what does it take to be a successful entrepreneur? Yeah, your perspective on that. I've thought about this a lot and it's, I think to be a successful entrepreneur, you need to have three fundamental things. You need to have charismatic communication. Again, be able to tell I that like story. The charismatic angle, well, I mean, and you gotta be, you know, people want to enjoy being with you, right? Sure. Like, you know, they yeah. want to have a beer with you, right? Yeah, like, they want to like you. And they want to know that you're a good person, right? Like True. somebody that you're willing to spend time with even outside of the business sort of world, right? But you gotta be able to communicate in a charismatic way that is enticing, that brings people in and, you know, tells the story. You got to have just a ton of intestinal fortitude. Man, it is so hard to do a startup. You have a lot of grit, basically. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I did GEP, it was like everyone was helping me out when I was a student and, you know, yeah, I'll do this for you. I'll do that for you. And then the second I graduated and I started a company full time, it was, oh, yeah, yeah, follow up with me. Yeah, yeah, sure. We'll do this. And it was just like, just, there you're was quite. Island. You're definitely on an island. You feel like you got all the arrows pointed at you, bow and arrows, and you're like, what am I doing here? I mean, I had a moment one night yeah. where I was just like, I don't know if I could do this, man. I started mm-hmm. just kind of freaking out. And then I just looked at myself in the mirror and said, no, no, you're doing this. <laughs> you're not giving up. Right. Nice. But there's definitely those moments for sure. Sure. So yeah, you have to have a lot of internal strength to just keep going, even when there's haters out there. So I have short story. Yeah. There's a professor at San Jose State, actually. I won't mention his name, but okay. you know, I was running around pitching the idea. Yeah. And then he found out about it and we like sort of competed with like some kind of program that San Jose State was sort of doing, but not really. Oh. Long story short, he pulls me in his office. He goes, You can't start a company. You can't bring people from all over the world here between the insurance and the liability. And someone's going to get their head lopped off. You should just go get a job. And I was just like, Whoa. I walked out of that professor's office and I never talked to him again. But like literally, that's the kind of battle, right? Like literally, a professor at your university pulls you into his office and tells you, you can't do that company. That's crazy. You can't start that. Sure. Yeah, I will never talk to that guy again. I mean, <laughs> nor have I ever talked to that guy again. But like, yeah. that's the type of stuff that you got to be strong, right? Yeah, like yeah, if yeah. you're weak or if you're questioning yourself, you're going to listen to that person. And you can say, oh, he's older than me and he's a professor and he's got all this experience. Yeah, let me just go take that corporate job and be safe. Yeah. So you, you got to fight that, man. It's like, you got to fight through that pain like in Pulp Fiction, man. You just got to fight through that pain, right? <laughs> I like that angle. And then what would you say as an angel employee, like with some perspective or traits that you should have? Because that's a very cool concept. Yeah. And there's a lot of angel employee. Basically, here's my perspective on it. Yeah. So you can be the all-star for a small baseball team. Say, right. for example, the Florida Marlins. Yeah. You know, like, oh, you could be Giancarlo Stanton who was there winning an MVP, but no one's watching you. Right. Or you could join the Yankees and you're pretty much, or the Dodgers or 
my team, the Giants, uh, <laughs> and you have a chance to be World Series kind of caliber team. And as an angel employee, I bet you these companies are looking for you. So what are some traits that you would suggest was like key to be that kind of personality? I mean, it's taken a lot of what I just talked about in the entrepreneur world, but applying it to the role itself, your, the role itself right? Okay. And so taking ownership, I mean, that's the biggest challenge, man, is like, I work with companies and I work with people all the time. And there's a difference between someone who owns their job and is accountable and is disciplined and is passionate about what the company is doing and someone who's just collecting a paycheck. You know, the caliber between the A player and the B player, it really should be the, he's, there's an A player and there's a D player. There really, you know what I mean? There is no B and C yeah. in my world. It's you're either the A player or you're the D player. Wow, and yeah, there's nothing in between. Extreme. So basically it kind of reminds me like you either win the Super Bowl or you're the top last place team. Yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. Right? interesting for So you, you take that energy, you take that passion that you have, and you take that ownership, and you apply that, and you be disciplined, and you be servant-led, okay. right? Yeah. And you will be successful in your role, and good things will happen to you. That's the way I look at yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, there's also, look, I mean, I've been in startups in two certain centers for support, but startups is a little bit more open-minded, collaborative. You have to work with a team that wants to win, because otherwise, versus like you're in a corporate world, there's a lot of inroads and fighting and bureaucracies and so on. So we could go into details. I'm just saying like, it's just, but that's all a distraction. You see the people who, totally. people who think about, in my opinion, people who look at the world like that or get involved in those type of things, they forget who the boss is. Who's the boss? You, the customer, the customer is always the boss. So people in the corporate world are different. I get involved in the politics and all that stuff. They forget the fact that your customers go away. Your company goes away. Yeah, exactly. So all of that is BS. Yeah, I get it. You know, so you got to stay focused on the boss. Yeah. Right? And so that mindset, that mentality. I like the perspective of the customers are, I mean, not everybody believes in this, but the customers always win and are always, almost always right. You could argue this. <laughs> you could argue this, right? Because you always have to sell what you have and this is as is and all this stuff. Without the customers, you're not going to be able to sell and work with them. And the, who are the customers depends. It's also, you know, a consumer-based product, a B2C product is different from a B2B product. That's, that's the that's difference, fair. right? Yeah, that's a good, so, that's a good point. Um, yes. I mean, we could go, I think we should have another podcast about that. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was going to, you have this interesting perspective about play to win. Don't cheat. Like, what is that perspective? I mean, I think one of my uh, blog posts is on like the relationship transaction versus the transaction relationship. And so essentially it's, you know, if you cheat to win, like all you're doing is like transaction relationships. You're not going to build a book of business. You're not going to build a reputation. People are going to talk about you behind your back, that type of thing, right? And so what you want to do is you want to develop relationships that lead to a transaction. And this is not, I mean, I learned all this stuff from the Sandler rules. You know what I mean? Like yeah, I'm not yeah. making anything What's up. The Sandler rules? Oh, the Sandler rules is like the fundamental. So it's the 49 rules of selling. It was written like the 1950s. And basically wow. every single like the challenger sale and yeah. the consultant sale and force management, all of these sales methodologies. Reminds me of watching the Ray Kroc movie. Yeah, 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 exactly. So like they're all just a derivative of one of the rules from the 49 Sandler rules. So that was my bread and butter. I mean, I read that oh, book right. in 2009 and that changed my life in terms of oh, sales wow. superpower, right? But a big part of that is what you want to do is you want repeat business. You want repeat sure. customers. You want referrals, right? And so if you are straightforward, if you are genuine and authentic, and you really, truly are just trying to solve the problem for the customer, they'll remember that. And frankly, they'll probably become friends with you. One of my really good friends, he lives in Alameda now. He was my champion at Levi's. I closed Levi's for a lot of money. I probably shouldn't say how much, right? But it was a very decent size, Gosh. huge logo, right? Sure. Big ARR in terms of revenue, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, him and I played golf like a month ago and we're still friends to this day. 
So he wasn't just another sales ticket for me, right? He wasn't just another transaction where I was going to get a commission check and never talk to the guy again. I mean, I literally known this guy since 2017. That's five years now. Yeah, I mean, definitely you build like this friendship. There's like-mindedness. And I could get the work with play mentality right there. Actually, you were talking an interesting thing about brand and personal brand. Mm-hmm. You, I love the fact you use your 30. How did you build your 30 brand with as this angel employee and or in the sales side? I don't know. I mean, you just got to be, I've always been kind of a unique kind of character, I guess. Right. But Even, your superpower is sales. I would like to think that my superpower is sales. Yeah. Nice. I mean, and sales okay. is literally just the ability to identify the problem and then map a solution to where it's a win-win situation. It's actually really not that complicated. Let me learn a little bit about what you're trying to do. Let me tell you about what we do. And if there's a solution here, let's work together for a fair economic exchange. Cause again, we're all capitalists here yeah. and this is a business after all. And if that works out, then great, we're going to be buddies and we're going to be happy together, yeah, right? And if it doesn't, that's okay too. I think so many salespeople are just, if I don't get this, I'm going to get fired, blah, blah, blah. I don't care, fire me. I don't care. I'll go to another company. I don't, yeah, I mean, I got confidence in that. Sure. Like, I'm not overconfident, right? I'm not being braggy or anything. It's just, I know what I can do. And I know that it's better to be upfront and not do a deal that doesn't make any sense, right? than to kind of force a deal and then have to back your way out of it and have to deal with a bunch of stuff. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's some good, interesting perspective. Do you have any stories about that? Do you have actually any story that like, you're like, ah, because you know, when you're a salesperson, you do have that kind of mindset. You want to close almost anything you have on the table and it helps with you off your job, your upside. But on the flip side, if you back out and say, well, maybe we're not right now because it's harder when you're in a bit early stage company, you don't have all the products from the later stage company. You do, but then on the flip side, an early stage company, you could hack your way and support that customer. Mm-hmm. I've noticed mm-hmm. that. Yeah, you could pretty much handhold them and do a lot of the grunt work in house. Versus when you're in a later stage, the resources are thin. You have a lot more scalability. You have referrals. I don't know. It's interesting talking. But again, this could be another podcast talk. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I got a good example there. When I was at segment, we had done a meeting with the Real Real. Are you familiar with yeah, them? Yeah, yeah. I think they went public a couple of years well, who's ago. Who's Real Real for people listening? It's a, it's a marketplace, right? It's okay, a marketplace yeah, yeah. for clothing, right? So people yep. would sell their high-end goods on it, right? Yeah. And so I remember having the first meeting with this woman, Bernice, and you know, we went back and forth. What are you trying to do? What are your goals? What are your objectives? And I just said, you know, I don't, I don't think this makes sense for you. I was like, you literally only have like three tools, Google Analytics, Mixed Panel, maybe one other thing. Like you're going to spend a ton of money. And like, I don't think you guys are ready for this. You know, here's our information. When you start spinning up a data warehouse... And when you need to start running SQL queries and when you have a couple more tools in your tech stack, when you sort of grow or sort of evolve a little bit more, like I think that's when it makes sense for us to do business. So I said that to her in January. I think it was like September, she called and said, okay, we're ready to buy. Now, the only problem with that is by that time, I got promoted to enterprise. And so then I went to somebody else and my buddy Steven oh, yeah. got all the commission check on it, which is fine, <laughs> right? The company did well. I didn't, yeah. So, yeah, so yeah. I, you know, I said, hey, we're, you're not ready for us yet, right? It doesn't make sense for you. Call us when you're ready. Because I kind of knew like eventually they had a lot of funding, they're hiring. I knew at some point in their evolution, they were going to be ready for us. Oh, that's really I good. I just missed the boat, you know, but on the commission No, but side. the way you, that was an, uh, incredible. Like you basically saw through it and said, look, timing's not right. Let's make it when it's right. And that probably is a customer for life. Like yeah, you said. that's right. They trust you and they believe in your uh, honesty. Yeah. And not uh, for nothing, but yeah. you know, they paid a lot more 10 months later than they would have in yeah. January, right? And we would have done the deal then probably for 50,000 bucks. And I can't remember what it was. It was definitely a six-figure deal by the time they bought. So it's like, yeah, he also took one step back to take two big steps forward. Yeah. And then where are you actually now? Are you still at uh, 
segment, which is part of Twilio? Where are you? No, no. So I pivoted over to a company called Sourcegraph. And That's so, right. yeah, I've been there about 18 months now. I joined when there was about 60 employees and what now we're Sourcegraph? 300. So Sourcegraph is basically a Google search engine for developers. And so just like you as a consumer, you go to Google and you search for, hey, I'm looking to get information about the best restaurant in Sonoma. And then what happens is, is you put that into your Google search engine and you get all of this context information around sure. like, here's all the restaurants, here's the reviews. Oh, here's, you want to make a reservation, click here for open table, make a reservation. You have this amazing experience around context search sure. as an everyday consumer. Yeah. So Sourcegraph is doing that, but for developers. And so That's for a developer writing code, there's a tremendous amount of context and variables that they need to understand to actually write and build and ship a product. And so it turns out that it's super sporadic and it's a very archaic way of doing it. You basically have to like, clone a repo, download it to your yeah. their laptop, and then use what's called an IDE to search, and they're not built for searches, right? And so Sourcegraph abstracts all that into a web browser, basically, and allows you to have truly universal search across all of your code hosts, all your repos, et cetera. So a developer, instead of spending, I don't know, 45 minutes trying to just find and understand what they're looking for, take that down to 45 seconds. And so we have Twitter, Uber, Lyft, Unity, Netflix. I mean, you can name the companies. You can look at the list. It's amazing. And it turns out, Going back to the superpower thing, Google actually has a version of Sourcegraph internally that they built back in 99 or whatever it is. They never really launched it. Well, no, it's an internal product. Oh, uh, it's an okay. internal but code search product. they never actually scaled it to other... They never commercialized it. Wow. No, because it's their superpower. Because they never let it out of their wheelhouse Got because it. every developer at Google, and Facebook has one too, yeah. but every developer at Google will tell you the reason Google can build and ship products that are best in class and are shipped to the market quickly is because they have this superpower called code search. And they literally just call it code search. It's just a generic. I like the general concept. Advising a company, very similar space, but I'm curious. So you're selling now to engineers? Developers, yeah. Yeah, and you're not a developer by trade. No, they hate me. (laughs) (laughs) Do you actually go solo? Do you actually work sometimes saying, yeah, I brought a product person now or an engineer? No, I mean, in all tech sales, you pretty much have like a sales engineer or a customer engineer that's on the call with you, right? And so it's a way more sophisticated. And so one of the things that I, and I have a blog post on this as well, is like, if you're going to be in technical sales, you at least need to know some fifth grade level sort of technical, like you can't be a kindergartner, right? Yeah, like yeah, yeah. you have to be at some level of maturity. You have to understand what an IDE is, right? Yeah. What Kubernetes is, what a Docker container is, like things of these nature. You have to understand at a very, I guess, rudimentary, but like not unsophisticated technical level to have a decent conversation with these developers and these tech folks. And then, of course, as you get in the weeds, you always have someone to kind of get your back. But you want to come in with credibility. You want to know that, hey, at least I understand your space. Yeah. But more importantly, I understand your pain and what the technical pain is there and why our solution will solve It's pretty fascinating that this hasn't been actually like an enterprise product for engineers and and search for code, basically, for all this long. So I like the concept. Congrats. Yeah, I mean, since I've been there, we've hired up to 300 people and wow. we've done two rounds of funding. And so we're at Amazing. $2.6 billion valuation with funding from Sequoia and A16. Uh, yeah, Andreessen Horace. And so, yeah, it's been uh, the last 18 months have been pretty on fire. Yeah, it's been Incredible. interesting. Yeah. And then I was going to ask a few quick questions. Yeah. What's your perspective on what's happening in 2020 and beyond? Like, what do you think is going to happen? What are you excited about in the future? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think... There's a lot of talk about Bitcoin or like, you know, crypto. There's a lot of talk about Web3. Sure. Um, but your personal, like, what's your excitement primarily? What are you uh, passionate about just holistically as a whole in tech for 2022 and beyond? You know, funny, enough, I, no, that's so thanks for the clarification. So 
At Power Beam, it was all hardware. It was over 10 years ago. And me and David were doing that. I got really excited about hardware. And then I realized how hard it was, right? It's so then I went hard for a reason. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So then I pivoted over to software just because software is a lot easier to sell, et yeah. cetera, et cetera. It's just a different sort of thing. And software is eating the world, et cetera, et cetera. But now hardware is becoming just not as easy as software, but it's becoming less, the barriers to entry is becoming much cheaper. And so I'm actually really excited about things around robotics. Oh, okay. Yeah. Robotics are really fascinating. Yeah. I just feel like there's definitely a transition because the U.S. really wants to get into manufacturing again to kind of compete in that space. I definitely see that being a pretty exciting time. So nice, man. And then any suggestion, any feedback you have with your superpower, with the certified uh, <laughs> pitches, which uh, being an angel employee that you have for others, if they ever want to do what you kind of your, your path, like, hey, you know what? I like it. He's a sales guy in the uh, startup world. Like any feedback you have in that regard? I mean, I think if you're going to be the best that you want to be, whether that's an engineer or a product manager or a salesperson, you just need to have tremendous focus and dedication, right? I mean, so everyone's probably heard this before, right? The Olympians don't just do nothing for three and a half years and then show up and run at the Olympics or throw a javelin at the Olympics, right? They train every single day for three and a half years or whatever it is. And then they show a day too. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so you got to be dedicated to your craft, man. Yeah. So decide what you're like for me again, it's sales. So like I wake up in the morning, um, this, especially when I was commuting, I pop in some Grant Cardone or I, I you know, I I pop in some sales book, right. And I listen to it on audio, sort of like just listen and absorb all the sales tactics and all the sales tricks. Right. And then I would try different things and I'd always read about whatever, like technology we were launching and like let's say at sourcecraft for example we're right in the middle of introducing a new deployment environment that i've never heard of so i'm getting real deep in what is this thing right who actually owns it how many customers do they have oh it turns out like this big customer this this big enterprise company is solely on this deployment okay so now i know a i'm going to go after that customer but then b i'm going to learn why is that different than kubernetes for example yeah, exactly. right because kubernetes oh, kubernetes, kubernetes, yeah, kubernetes. Yeah, well, actually yeah. there's something over here too yeah. called nomad which is actually really kind of interesting right but getting really yeah. deep and educated in that but again just being super dedicated to the craft and again it can be sales it can be engineering it can be product marketing it can be whatever it is that you care about just get purposeful get dedicated to it nice yeah yeah Surdy, chris Surdy, thanks so much for being on the chaubert show i hope everybody listening enjoyed the story and uh thanks so much thanks for having me